so glad to have everyone here with us. Hope it's enjoyable and you have a great week ahead. We've been in a series called In God We Trust. That's on the back of your money. And then I just added the word, really. And so we started by helping people who are having problems with money. You know, we got so many prayer requests. We stopped what we were doing. Like football, we called an audible. We changed the play. So we could help people both as friends and as, uh, as leaders. What can we do to get you off the prayer list? What can we do to make you whole? What can we… Listen, you don't want to live your life on a prayer list, do you? No, you want to be able to help pray for somebody else or help somebody else. So we don't want you to stay in a ditch. If you find yourself in a ditch, stop digging. Stop. We want to get you out. And so we talked about the tithe challenge. That was number one. We looked at it just like a seminar. No guilt, shame, or condemnation, just a direct promise from God. And then number two, we talked about Paul's admonition to wealthy people, to the rich. And we said, well, who's rich? Then we discovered that most of us are in the top 1% when you look at the world earning a dollar a day or two dollars a day max. That's all of us. And he teaches us how to behave because we have resources. Really, really clear instruction and the benefit of it as well. So today's part three, and then we'll just have one more, and we'll close this series. And this is called the generosity paradox. The generosity paradox. Paradox means a truth that appears contradictory. So Jesus would say, the way up is down. Humble yourself, God will exalt you. Exalt yourself, and God will humiliate you. So it's a paradox. The way up is up, not down. But in the kingdom, he says, if you want to go up, go down, humble yourself. The way to get is to give. Totally contradictory to conventional wisdom. The way to save your life, lose your life. Is this making sense to anybody? At least you learned a word, paradox. A paradox is a truth that appears to be contradictory, though it's not. And so the kingdom of God is contrary to conventional wisdom when you come into it. So we're going to talk about it today, and I'm going to take some comments from a great book that I would recommend in a few moments. Here's conventional wisdom about money, that it's just about math. The more you get, the richer you are. If you give some, you have less, so you lose. It's just a numbers deal, Rick. Now, to illustrate, I have two stacks of money on this little table beside me. This is a stack of 10 $1 bills. And we've been talking about tithing, and we taught that tithe is 10%. It's the first 10%. So I have $10, and if I take one away, I only have nine left, so I actually have less. So I'm richer if I don't give, I'm poorer if I give God that dollar. I mean, by conventional wisdom, right? Seems that way. Okay. Then. Next to it, I've got a stack of $100 bills. I feel I need some security. So there's 10 $100 bills. Now, I look at that, and I'm thinking, well, that's a dollar, but that's, that's a thousand bucks. That'll make a difference. 
I could do something with a thousand dollars. And then I think about the first tenth is a hundred dollars. Lord of mercy, that's a lot of money. A hundred dollars. I could do something with a hundred dollars. And if you're not careful, money just starts messing with your mind and it does some strange things to you. Well, I put this away as I look towards my wife. I'll leave the ones for her. One of the things we talked about if you want to be obedient in tithing and giving, is learn to do it when you're younger, when you have less money, because the more money you have, the less people tend to give away. And we looked at statistics in our first message that people use this thing, if I made more, I'd give more, and we proved it a myth, totally untrue. And we took salaries of incomes in America, we looked at charitable giving, and we saw that the higher the income went, the lower the percentage went, all the way down to 2.6 percent, a long way from 10 percent. So it's just a myth. This is something you do by choice because God makes a promise with it, and either you believe what God said or you don't. It's just that simple. Conventional wisdom says this, make as much as you can, keep as much as you make, because the more you give, the less you have, and the less you give, the more you will have. If you give nothing, you've got the maximum amount you could have. If you have $10, you give one. 10 minus one is nine. But if you have 10 and you give nothing, then 10 minus zero equals 10. So 10 is more than nine. Everybody with me so far? This is really deep. You want to be in my math class? In other words, conventional wisdom says it's only math. Keeping is the best strategy to get rich rather than giving. It's just math. It's just numbers. However, there is an unconventional wisdom that is a completely different way, counterintuitive. And it's spoken about from history by a lot of folks, but never more clearly than from our Lord Jesus. And here's what He says, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall be poured into your lap. For with the same measure you give, it will be measured back to you. Now, Jesus is giving us an observation about the way life works, about how things are. It's a claim, a direct claim that conventional wisdom is wrong, and you can test it. What's interesting is that when you start to look at it, you start seeing this unconventional wisdom all through the Bible. Solomon, the wisest man in the Bible, said, one person gives freely. This is from Proverbs. One person gives freely and gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others shall himself be refreshed. So once again, it's a claim. It's an absolute claim that can be empirically tested. When it comes to resources, finances, generosity, conventional wisdom, Jesus says, is totally wrong. All math will lead you astray. People before Jesus saw it. Jesus saw it and taught it. People who followed Jesus saw it. Here's one more passage from the Apostle Paul. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Again, it's a claim. 
Now he who supplies seed to the sower, speaking of God, and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So Paul said, I want you to think of generosity not in terms of having and losing, but of sowing and reaping. This puts it in another category altogether. Think about Paul's picture for a moment. There has only been in human history one economic revolution. There's been industrial revolutions, but this one is the biggest of all, economic. I don't know for how long human beings roamed on planet Earth from one place to the other. They lived from one day to the next. They scavenged and foraged for food where they could find it. They couldn't build communities, create culture, or build institutions until one day the greatest innovator in human history, and we don't even know who it was, made a discovery, looked for some investors, and said this, I want you to give whatever grain, whatever seed you have found that you've been storing up so you could eat them. And instead of just eating them, which is what we've always done, I'm going to put them in the ground. I know, boys, this sounds kind of crazy. I get it, but I've discovered something about the nature of reality previously unknown to the human race that's going to just blow your mind. And if you take your supply of seed and put it in the ground, I call this sowing, something incredible happens. Some kind of power gets unleashed. I don't understand it. I don't get it. It's like something in the sky says to something down in the ground, hey, wake up, come alive, grow. And it does. I know, boys, it sounds crazy, but it works. Trust me. Just run a test on it. Now, this is the very first startup. It's actually how startups got their name in business. You put a little seed in the ground, it starts to grow. It starts up. God says generosity is that way. Money is that way. Give it away kind of sounds crazy. Take what you have. He said 10%. Sow it. Sounds like unconventional wisdom. He says, if you do, something happens. Some kind of power gets unleashed. It's like something in the sky says to something in the ground, hey, wake up, come alive, grow. And it does. And if you sow richly, he says, you'll reap richly, give, and it shall be given to you. Now, that's not a sneaky way to get rich or affluent. In fact, if your aim is just to be rich, you'll go wrong every time. Paul says, you will be enriched in every way so you can be generous on every occasion. Now, I think some folks like me would be thinking, somebody ought to put this claim to the test to see if it can be scientifically verified. And it turns out, somebody has. A most amazing book is called The Paradox of Generosity. It's written by a sociologist from Notre Dame whose name is Christian Smith. He's done kind of a definitive definitive research and a study to look at the impact of generosity on the lives of real people. This is not a Bible study. This is for those of you that don't believe the Bible. You just have one. They surveyed over 2,000 people in a nationally representative survey, and then they did in-depth surveys with several scores of people. They used the best tools of social science to look at what does generosity do for people. 
Is conventional wisdom right? If you give it away, do you lose? Or is the unconventional wisdom right? I'll give you a summary. This is part of what Smith writes, quote, generosity is paradoxical. Those who give receive back in turn. By spending ourselves for others' well-being, we enhance our own standing. In letting go of some of what we own, we better secure our own lives and future. By giving ourselves away, we ourselves move towards flourishing. This is not only a philosophical fact or a religious teaching. He said it's a proven sociological fact. The generosity paradox can also be stated in the negative. By grasping onto what we currently have, we lose out on better goods we might have gained. In holding on to what we possess, we diminish long-term value to ourselves. By always protecting ourselves against future uncertainty and misfortune, we are affected in ways that make us far more anxious about uncertainty and vulnerable to future misfortune. In short, he says, by failing to care for others, we do not properly take care of ourselves. So whatever you think about the Bible or other spiritual traditions and what they say about generosity, just based on scientific research, they look at two different ways of life. They look at the generous heart, people who regularly, freely give a significant portion of their valued resources, their time, their money away to others to help others versus the ungenerous heart. They look at real people who do not regularly and freely give away their valued resources, their time and their money to others. And it turns out in scientific study and in every interview, your happiness, your physical health, in having a purpose for living, in avoiding depression, in personal growth, in actual your autoimmune system in your body, generous people are enriched in every way, and ungenerous people are diminished in every way. Turns out Jesus was right. I mean, go figure. Turns out that ungenerosity actually costs you more than generosity in every area or dimension of life. Now, to illustrate how this works, let me take you back to the book of Exodus and look at probably one of the most ungenerous hearts in the Bible. It belongs to a guy named Pharaoh. And this is what it says in Exodus. Then a new king arose to whom Joseph meant nothing. And the reason that little phrase is in there in the book of Genesis, it's actually the work of Joseph and his people Israel that have enriched Egypt and enriched Pharaoh. But this is a Pharaoh with no gratitude in his heart. So it says, there arose a new Pharaoh who did not put any value on Joseph. He came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they may join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. And the Israelites built a couple of cities as store cities for Pharaoh. Now, this author, Christian Smith, found that one of the ways generosity leads to flourishing is that generosity tends to reduce self-absorption. It turns out ungenerous people tend to fixate only on themselves over their problem, what they need, what they don't have, what they want, and they get into this obsessive egocentrism. Pharaoh is a poster boy for self 
absorption. All he thinks about is himself, me, myself, and I, and it impoverishes his heart. He says, I got to have more slaves so I can have more bricks, so I can have more storage unit, so I can keep more grain, so I can hoard more wealth. Well, how much do you have, Pharaoh? Not enough. How much do you need, Pharaoh? More. Always the answer, never enough. Pharaoh's the richest guy in Egypt, and Pharaoh is the most financially insecure guy in Egypt. He's miserable over what he might lose. Miserable life. Smith also found ungenerous hearts pay a relational cost. Moses gets sent by God to Pharaoh. He says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Well, here's what Pharaoh doesn't say. Moses, good to see you, buddy. How are you people doing? Are working conditions okay? Everybody getting enough to eat? Are there opportunities for advancement for the people? How's the morale out there? See, Pharaoh knows if he's generous with them, if he allows them some time off, that means less bricks for him. And he's not going to be generous. His goal is more bricks. So he needs Israel to be more motivated. So Pharaoh has an idea. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to slave drivers and the overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go out and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people. Then Pharaoh says to the Israelites, and people with more will often say this to people who have less. Lazy, that's what you are, lazy. Now get to work. You're not going to be given any more straw. You're going to produce the full quota of bricks and get your own straw. People with ungenerous hearts have a way of developing a distorted view to other people, and it leaves them relationally bankrupt. Nobody likes them. They don't have friends. There's a woman at Princeton named Susan Fisk. She's done a fascinating research on how we look at the poor. She's done a lot of researching around stereotyping, and she says in stereotyping people, there are two main dimensions. She says, you see a stranger in an alley, and you tend to rate them or evaluate them based on two thoughts. First, warmth. Do they intend good or harm for me? That's the warmth criteria. The second one is competence. Are they able to carry out their intention? or not. So she says we tend to put people in one of four quadrants based on how high or low warmth they are or high or low competence they have. Some people we would judge as being very high in warmth, good people. They're high in competence. They're strong. They can do what they want to do. These are our heroes. We give them our admiration. We admire these people. She writes, then there are some people we'd say are very high in competence but they're not very warm. She says, we don't like these people a lot. We tend to envy them, movie stars and celebrities who are selfish, high in competence, but not very warm. Then she says, there are some people our heart moves towards. We'll put them in high warmth category, but they're very low in competence, and we pity these people. And then she says, there's one more quadrant. This is the interesting one. This is the only one of the four there's nothing positive at all about. These are people low in warmth. We don't like them. They're low in competence. They can't do anything. And Susan Fisk, these people elicit contempt. 
And here's what's very interesting. In the research, she says, in our society, we put homeless people in that quadrant. She says there's a lot of stuff that can be done now in neuroscience by using brain scans. Neuroimaging shows that when people look at images of extreme poverty of the poor, the same part of their brain is active as when they look at stuff or objects or things. In other words, at the brain level, we don't even think of them as people that have hopes or feelings and dreams and hurts like us. The number one emotional response to the poor in our day, she said, is contempt. Uh, okay, time out. The guy that's got your traffic stopped and working a corner, that's not who we're talking about. We're talking about genuine homeless and poor people, and there are agencies that we support that are competent, are equipped to help masses of them. Haven for Hope is just one. Other areas, we support those. It's not giving a quarter to the guy that's making a day's wage to get drunk or buy drugs. I understand that. Is everybody with me? I understand that. But for poor people in general, in mass, we're supposed to have compassion, not contempt. The only contempt I have is somebody jumps on the hood of your car in order to intimidate you to give them something or threaten you. Now, that's wrong. But, so I just want to be sure I'm clear on that, that we, we do it in a positive way. The Salvation Army, we support them as well. In, in so many agencies that are there for one reason, to help get poor off the street and to get them rehabilitated or to get them off their narcotics or their alcohol or dependence, to get them a skill, to get them gainfully employed so they can return to, to, to real life, whatever the setback has been. She writes, babies don't do that. You have to learn to look at the poor with contempt. It's the same thing about babies in the South. You're not born with racism. You learn it. It's taught. You pick it up in your culture and relationships. Now, what's interesting is that when Jesus came to earth, He was God incarnate. You can't get higher in competence than Jesus. All power, all authority in heaven and earth. Come on. Ain't nobody even in that league. And you don't get higher in warmth, the one who would die for you. He said, birds have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Shane Claiborne puts it like this, you can't worship with a homeless man on Sunday, that's Jesus, and ignore one on Monday. Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. When you see one of these, you're looking at me. So when we see people really bitten with poverty. So generous hearts start to move forward towards this. Generous hearts build bridges. Ungenerous hearts build walls. People who keep clutching and holding on to everything, these dollars, they get a little poor every year in every regard. And the writer Smith puts it this way, generosity expands the number and density of social network relational ties. That means when you're a generous person, you, you not only help and serve and give, but you also get back learning from other people. My, this church is multiracial, very diverse. Our board of elders that govern this church, we've got South Americans, we've got Nicaraguans, we've got Filipino, we've got African American, we've got white Caucasian, and probably a little mix thrown in there. In, in our staff, completely mixed. On our platform, completely mixed, and in our church, completely Well, that's a—I learn by, ex, by exposing myself to different culture, 
I broaden myself. I make myself more effective, more efficient, and actually a better person. So everybody from every background, whether you have little or much, teach me something. Teach me something about how you feel, or how you see life, or how you approach, or what you've been through. One of our staff members was discriminated against, and in, in, I got so mad in staff meeting, I want to get up and punch the lights out of somebody who had done such a thing to her. I, it just was unthinkable in my heart. Now, this is, this is the, the good Ricky. This is the Jesus Ricky, okay? This is not the dark side of Ricky. This is just the Jesus side. I, I just cannot stand it. I, I don't make my friendship with you based on whether you voted Democratic or Republican or Tea Party or, or whether you're black or white or Hispanic. It's just like it's an unconditional friendship unless you just become a jackass. Then I don't care what color you are or whatever, I just going to back up. Right? That's the only profiling we ought to do, wise or stupid. And if it's stupid, I don't care what it is, just back away from it. Right? Sure. So I hope you can learn from me, and I hope I can learn from you. I, see, I was raised in the South. I was never discriminated against. I never had to worry if a highway patrolman pulled me over at night. But back in the 50s in my day, if I was an African-American man, I'd be scared to death. Because there was no prosecution. There were no body cameras. There was no rights. There was no civil rights movement even at that time. Not yet. And so I, I, I want to feel compassion towards some of my older African-American friends and teach the younger ones the huge price they paid just to be able to eat in a restaurant or ride to the front of the bus. I wouldn't get that if I didn't have close friendships. And then I want them to know that all white people don't hate black people or Hispanic people because it just ain't so. I'll, I'll fight for you. Okay. Well, where was I? Another cost ungenerous people have is a lower sense of meaning and purpose in life when they wake up every day. Think about that. I just love this stuff. Instead of being the oppressor of Israel, Pharaoh could have been a hero. He could have been. He could have been a Martin Luther King, a Nelson Mandela, or an Abraham Lincoln. He could have been. He could have said, go on, I want you to worship your God. I'm giving you that freedom. I'll be your benefactor. I'll be your champion. I believe in you. I'll be your friend. He could have been that, and they would have built statues to him. They would have cheered him and loved him. Instead of doing that, he's building himself a great big pyramid. Anybody remember what went inside a pyramid? I think it's called a dead body. He said, I'm going to build the world's greatest building, and when I die, I'll move my dead carcass in that, and everybody will go, wow, how impressive is that? <laughs> Stupid. Ungenerous hearts end up living for wretched, miserable little egos, and they build giant monuments that nobody cares about, into which their dead carcass can be stored. They could have lived for a noble cause and didn't. Another cost of the ungenerous heart Christian Smith found was anxiety. Ungenerous people become increasingly anxious and fearful people. It turns out ungenerous people rationalize their ungenerosity by convincing themselves year after year, day after day, that the world is a place of scarcity, a place of not enough. I've got to hang on to every single one of these dollars I can because my clutching is justified by what a wretched world this is. Now, as long as money—and here's your takeaway— 
As long as money is the chief source of your security, money will always be the chief source of your anxiety. And you won't know until it's threatened. And when somebody breaks in your house and takes all your valuables away, you'll find out whether you're an idolater or not. You know, I could be angry. Somebody took what's mine, not theirs. But the thought never occurred to me, I'm finished. My life's over. I'll never have anything again. I might as well just kill myself. I might as well just die. That's an ungenerous heart. I'm thinking God takes away to establish, and when He takes away, He establishes something that's even better. So my thoughts are, this is an abundant world, loaded with abundance. There's no shortage in this world. Some of the wrong people have it, because some of the right people won't obey God to get it. And I can't do anything about it, but I'm simply saying, I've always had a positive. Ask my wife. She does live and sleep with me. And ask her if this guy sucks his thumb, gets psychiatric care, needs shots, and has to take drugs to overcome the loss of stuff. It's never happened. It'll never happen. This sucker burned to the ground. I'm not going to be out. Oh, God. Somebody call Dr. Phil, Dr. Drew. I need help. Ain't going to happen. I just figure there's so much out there, and I have such a big God, He can get it right there. I'm, I, that's my confidence. My security's in Him. I'm not worried. I'm not afraid. And you shouldn't be either. Fear is so toxic. So don't let money be the chief source of your security. Let God be. That's why we live in the most affluent age in human history in the middle of unbelievable financial anxiety. Smith says this, practicing generosity requires and reinforces the perception of living in a world of abundance and blessing. Jesus said one day, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store in barns, yet our Heavenly Father feeds them every day. He sends Rick down to Home Depot in order to get seed so Cindy can feed all these bird feeders in our backyard. So I always say to them as I'm pouring, this is from God, you rascals. <laughs> it turns out practicing generosity requires and reinforces the perception we live in a world of abundance and a world of blessing. Jesus had considered the lilies of the field. They don't toil, they don't spin. Yet Solomon, in all of his magnificent glory, was not arrayed or clothed like one of these. Jesus said that. Practicing generosity requires and reinforces that I live in a world of abundance and blessing, which increases happiness and health. It turns out the universe we inhabit is located in a spiritual reality made by God that favors generosity. You're hardwired to give. It turns out you reap what you sow. Now, Smith goes on to write about the joy of people who have discovered this truth. This was so funny. In the book, he mentions a guy named Ken Walker. And he's a generous guy. Walker is a guy who is not only generous with his money, but also with his time. He also gives blood. Now, mostly you don't think of getting stuck by a needle and giving away blood as a joyful thing, right? But this is what Ken says. I'm extremely competitive. I started giving blood at work. I think they came in three or four times a year. So I would always give blood. I was also in training hard for the marathon. I'm really fit. They would come in and give instructions about a pint that it would take about four minutes to give a pint of blood and how everybody's blood typically comes out with all that brown sludge chocolate syrup color. Mine was eraser pink. And I'm just cranking out a pint in two minutes and 47 seconds. 
he's timing it. It's like, what are you doing, Ken? I'm winning. I'm winning. This guy is pouring out his blood, and he thinks he's winning. Oddly enough, listen to this. It turns out that having your body give blood and having it have to regenerate blood actually boosts the oxygen content of the blood in your body. It actually makes your blood transport more efficiently throughout your body. It turns out that even your body, even your blood is somehow hardwired to give. What a weird world. It's like give and it shall be given to you even in your blood. Even in your blood. Imagine that. So that's why we're doing the tithe challenge. God says, Malachi 3, test me in this. Everywhere in the Old and New Testament, you're prohibited from testing God. I'll jump off this building and test God. No, no. He says, no, no, no. But in this area on the tithe, he says, I give you full permission, test me and see if I won't bless you. And you can run your own experiment. Tithe for 90 days. If God is not clearly blessing you, if what Paul says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, if that's not happening, go back to your normal giving. God says, I give you permission. Put me to the test. I hear a lot of people run in their mouth who have never tested it. Invalid, inadmissible evidence. If you went to the court with our district attorney, inadmissible. You haven't done it, and yet you've got your big opinion. Never take the opinion of somebody that's not doing it, okay? Uh, whatever, you know. So, this little deal comes up about about giving, and I made this statement. I says, learn to tithe 10% of your income and do it for 90 days. And I said, if you think we're trying to take your money, give it to another church, give it to another charity. This is about you. It's about God's promise to take care of you. And it's supernatural. God's going to do and multiply that seed. And so we've started getting testimonies like crazy. This is pretty soon, actually. But even the first day, somebody got business contracts who couldn't make payroll before they left the building and had several days of work lined up. Somebody else has called in just the other day, a week later, got a promotion to manager and a raise in pay. Who would have thought that? I mean, Jesus said so, but what does he know? And then, and then I think one of our staff members, her sister or somebody, uh, did her first check to tithe, and she was told she had $1,500 in an IRA account, and she was going to pay some bills. So when she went down to investigate, she had nearly $5,000 in there. She wouldn't, had no clue. Just one little thing after another. And we've been praying that God would show up big in some of your lives when you're just taking a baby step to put God to the test so He could get your attention, sometimes radically, just to get your attention to say, hey, don't doubt me. If I make you a promise, I'll back it up. It's not always instant, but it always is there. He will always care for you. And then another question I run into, I tithe with my time, Rick, so I don't have to tithe with my money. Is that correct? Well, Sparky, that idea is actually not in the Bible. In fact, it's kind of interesting. Smith discovered in his research, generous people tend to be generous with both money and their time, and ungenerous people tend to be ungenerous with both their money and their time. 
Those two go hand in hand. Isn't that fascinating? In fact, when God delivered Israel from slavery, He gave them the practice of tithing. He said, I want the first 10% of your income, it belongs to me, and the Sabbath. He said, I want you to regard the first day of the week as mine, as belonging to me, and I'll bless the rest of it. He says, Israel, 90% of your income with my blessing on it is more than 100% without it, and six days of your week with my blessing is more than seven days a week. Test me in this. Kind of interesting. Time and talent. Now, you know we've got the biggest women's conference in the city that's by a local church chosen. We'll have about 1,500 women from all areas around here and some from out of the city that'll be here at the end of September, Friday night and all day Saturday. And we need volunteers. And so generous people not only are generous with their money, they're generous with their time. And we want to be able to produce stuff around here that sparkles in our city where people's lives can be changed. But it doesn't just happen. You've got to have incredible volunteers. Brian Houston, when they have uh, 20,000 people there, they have 4,000 volunteers at Hillsong, or it wouldn't work. Those people have to give up a week in order to serve. We're just asking you for Friday night and, and, and Saturday morning, and when we dismiss this service, you can go right out here in the lobby on your way out and sign up at a table to serve. You've only got about a month left, so be sure to wait till the last day. Nothing like being generous. And so, it's a real gut check. You really, in God we trust, really? Really? Now, one of, the, uh, one of the greatest men who ever lived says, truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In the same way, anyone who holds on to their life will lose it. But if you let it go in reckless love, you will have it forever real and eternal. Now, that's a claim. Somebody ought to check it out. Somebody did test it. The Bible says that for the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross. For the joy set before Him, He poured out His blood like He thought He was winning. They buried His dead body in the ground like a seed, like you do a grain of wheat. And then I know it sounds crazy. Something happened. Some kind of power got unleashed. Someone in the sky said to somebody in the ground, hey, wake up. Come alive get out of there. And He did. And it's true. And it's the reality in which we all live. The Heavenly Father sowed His only Son, His best seed, first fruits, gave it for the world. And what did He get back for one son? Millions of sons, sons and daughters of God Almighty. You can't lose when you're generous. Amen and amen. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media.